Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. Today's film is The Neon Demon. And this is directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. We've discussed him previously on the podcast with Drive. And just a heads up, we've seen The Neon Demon. It's impossible to talk about the film without spoilers in mind. So if you haven't seen the film, be forewarned that we are discussing it with spoilers. Lloyd, uh, Elle Fanning, she's all grown up. Um, (laughs) She sure has. She was a little kid in I Am Sam, and that's kind of how I've seen her. But obviously her sister Dakota Fanning, you know, you kind of see the same sort of look in the face and stuff. So Elle Fanning, uh, this is a very grown-up story. An aspiring model moving to Los Angeles, and basically models are commodities in this world. I mean, first of all, let's talk about Nicholas Winding Refn. I'll throw it to you. Uh, I think he is a master filmmaker. I think the hardest thing about directing a film, in my mind, is getting the pacing right. And I know it's so blatantly obvious that he rips off a lot of David Lynch, and there is a lot of Mulholland Drive here. But to get that pacing displayed in this film, and for that matter, a lot of his other films, it requires a huge amount of skill. A lot of filmmakers just can't do it. And every moment of silence, every moment of dialogue in Neon Demon is handled with great delicacy. There might be a bit too much precision in in a lot of his pacing, but and you could feel him at times checking off the David Lynch book on how to make films. And don't like pretend like you don't have one, Mister Refn. This was shot by Natasha Breyer, South American DOP, whose other works include The Rover, starring Guy Pearce. She must have used prime vintage lenses to get a lot of those lens flares that dominate a lot of the visuals uh, in this movie. Uh, I would hate to hear that they were added in post, but it wouldn't surprise me in this day and age. Um, And I think she did a great job. This is one of the best-looking films I've seen this year, and uh, the cinematography worked really well with that really bizarre production design and the music uh, by Cliff Martinez was fantastic as well but I find a lot of Cliff uh, winding ref and one of his greatest gifts is how he puts imagery to music he just has a uh, great sense of, I don't know, editing, rhythm, timing. I especially love all that um, when they go see that show and it's all that uh, strobe lights. Mm. You remember that moment? Yeah, I yeah love like it. I thought you wouldn't want to have epilepsy watching this Yeah, film. I know. There should have been a warning at the beginning probably, but I, yeah. I thought that looked fantastic. I mean, the look of this film was fantastic and I was watching it thinking, oh, that's a good shot. Oh, that's fantastic imagery. Um, when the photographer who um, he's from Dexter, uh, when he takes pictures of uh, Elle Fanning's character and his hand is covered in gold, like the Midas touch, you know. I was just watching that, Desmond Harrington's his name, the um, the the actor. And, and I was just like, oh, wow, like, uh, you know, the photographer's being glamorised here as well. I, was, I think one of the things he did well besides that was the tone of these characters, these bitchy girls really nailing this adult mean girls kind of mentality and uh the dog eat dogness of the modeling world you know <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah some more oh, i'll get to that but um yeah just these these girls 
they were very watchable, but it wasn't just about beauty. It was about there was something insane behind the eyes. And, I mean, they've read the script. They know where it's going. But um, straight from that opening shot, it's a dead body. So you've got this intrigue and thriller and mystery to it. Of course it's a dead body in a fashion shoot, though. There's layers and layers here, and I feel like you're going to get something different out of each viewing. I did feel like I read a review that said this was the most divisive film of the year. Either you're going to think it's pretentious garbage or the best film of 2016. So do you fall on either side of that? (laughs) Well, I I saw Neon Demon as a modern horror fairy tale, and I agree with uh, one of the film critics I read, uh, Mark Commode, that he said there is a lot of the company of wolves all throughout this movie. Uh, The idea is a young, innocent girl of great beauty comes to this dark kingdom of LA and becomes consumed with pride. That scene where she meets the Neon Demon with the triangle and she, you know, goes all red. That's the idea that... You know, that's where she goes onto the other side and she becomes really uh, narcissistic after that. Uh, A coven of jealous witches perform a dark ritual sacrificing the virgin beauty to a blood moon. There is that idea and the witches believe that by consuming the girl they will gain some of her beauty. And there is a lot of imagery all throughout this movie that supports that fairy tale look. And I really love that moment where she can hear her neighbour getting robbed or attacked by someone that's really eerie and she puts her ear to the wall and we see that zoom out of the wallpaper and her, you know, on it just so eerily like a fairy tale but a very, very dark and grim one. I don't think Nicholas Winding Refn is like an intellectual director like a Stanley Kubrick or anything similar to that. I just think he's a very talented guy that likes really obscure things and likes to pay homage, maybe way too much, which I want to get into, of his favourite filmmakers like David Lynch, Mario Bava, Dario Gento and so forth. On the the listening to the neighbour thing, it was interesting when you could hear through a wall and when you couldn't because when she's in the nightclub uh, talking to the other girls and they're saying, who are you fucking? And, you know, that, implying that there's this ladder to modelling and, you know, to move up, you screw around. It was the noisiest kind of club scene, but then there's soundproof bathrooms. <laughs> and it was so interesting to sort of... It took me out of it a little bit, but it did create this what's real and what's not real element to the film. And as well, when... She was covered in blood from the beginning. You know how she was casually taking baby wipes and trying to clean the blood off herself? Yeah. I was just thinking back to the time when I was in a zombie extra um, the other year. And um, they pour you this uh, like chocolatey syrup blood stuff. It doesn't taste horrible. I had to get it poured into my mouth and then basically you spit it out over your chin and it drips onto your clothing as if you've been feasting on uh, on blood or, you know, on the blood of whoever and uh, it has you know an okay taste to it but there's a lot of it and it's very sticky and gross i was just thinking she had it all over her upper body and stuff that she should just go take a shower yeah like, i know she's that gonna use a easy. million baby wipes maybe the facilities just didn't have a shower yeah well go home just go <laughs> home put on a dressing gown that they provide and just leave and just destroy it afterwards there was a theme of vanity and there were mirrors in heaps of shots as well. So, uh, you know, you're constantly forced to look at the reflections of these people. That neon demon bit with the triangle, I think I read that that was improvised. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, that she sort of just was in front of it and just posing and doing whatever. And I'm guessing there's a lot of trial and error with this film. She does kind of get consumed by, you know, she comes out different on the other side after meeting the neon demon, as you put it. She does say, 
I, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't write, I have no real talent, but I'm pretty, and uh, I can make money off pretty. So it starts as a superficial need, uh, well, her only sort of skill and life set. And then we have that synthy music and flashing lights with the neon triangles. She sort of dream kisses her reflection there, and it is very surreal. But for me, the choice of not uh, no inclusion of we'd ever see her walk down a runway to any applause. Yeah, there's we, no there's no crowd there as well. There's only a handful of models. This dark runway, very economical. Bear in mind, this film was made for seven million dollars and it bombed miserably. <laughs> mm. And also you never see a print ad, you never see the end result of any of these campaigns. And she seems to never get paid. Like, seriously, you can't not get out of that awful motel headed by Keanu Reeves. That was, yeah. That's a horrible place. Just get an apartment or something. You, you get, you're working with these high-class models and photographers now, I'm assuming. Why can't she get paid yet? Who knows? Um, I guess because she's underage and maybe there's some abuse to the system here. But Absolutely, yeah, that's a good point. I think if Keanu Reeves wasn't playing that character, and he wasn't running that hotel, that all the hotel scenes would have been cut down. Uh, for me, the whole cougar in your room, it never really paid off. It was just an odd thing that happened. Yeah, it, uh, there's a lot of that showing off. The film, uh, it's as if it takes time out into the surreal for minutes, it seems, just to show off some bizarre sort of moments. I really like, though, the room 214, gotta be seen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it was a little kind of scene-stealing uh, bit from Keanu. As well, Christina Hendricks, who also featured in Drive, has one scene here. So if you're watching it for Christina Hendricks from Mad Men, yeah, she's barely in it. She's just in it for a little introduction, little exposition. Not Jenna Malone, but Bella Heathcote and Abby Lee. I know Abby Lee is Australian from uh, Fury Road, but is... Bella Heathcote, Australian as well? Yeah, yeah. She was in Dark Shadows with, um, what's his face, um, Johnny Depp that we reviewed. Um, she was Victoria Winters. Right. Uh, yeah, she's Australian as well. She used to be in Neighbours very briefly. Yeah, but, uh, just sort of a, another Aussie doing well overseas. She's going to be in apparently Fifty Shades Darker, so... They like definitely... our blonde Aussie girls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like Nicholas Winding Refn is very talented, like you say. I feel like I'm watching a very complete, very thought-out movie when I'm seeing his work. Uh, actors obviously want to work with him as well. He's going to draw a lot of heat from this film, though. I feel like I was totally with it for about 80% of the film, and then without, you know, sort of uh, care, the death of our lead character... Totally changes the film. <laughs> yeah, jump in. <laughs> <laughs> if you break down the entire sequence of the death of Jesse, I think it's absolutely virtuosic. They chase her in this mansion and then push her into an empty swimming pool, which we don't actually see the impact of Jesse hitting the floor of the empty pool. Instead, we just cut to her crippled, bleeding body. We then have an out-of-focus point-of-view shot of the girls coming towards her. The, the next scene is of the girls showering and bathing in blood. We have no idea what really happened. And we see uh, an, another sequence of Ruby just going about a business in the garden sleeping. But then we have Ruby bleed or urinate in front of a full moon. It looks like she gets her period, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I couldn't tell if that was blood or if it was 
urine <laughs> just, just from the lighting and everything like that but yeah that's what I assumed uh, and then the climactic moment where Gigi kills herself and Sarah eats the eyeball that whole sequence up until uh, just before Gigi kills herself I thought was handled really incredible and there really isn't any sense of graphic violence my biggest criticism with Nicholas Winding Refn, and I said the same thing on the Drive podcast, which we did, is that he goes so far, maybe too far with his violence. He has all the talent in the world, but he can't shake off that immaturity. He loves so many filmmakers, like I said before, Mario Bava and Dario Argento, and absolutely has to insert homages to his favourite directors all throughout his movies. He has to start paying attention to the story and do what the story wants and not go, hey, I need to insert a homage here. The climactic ending of the film where Gigi, played by Bella Heathcote, as I said, stabs herself because she had to get Jesse out of her, didn't seem realistic to the character at all. The suicide seemed really forced, really, really out of character for me. And by forcing a violent scene just for the sake of homage, which I think was for Mario Bava or Dario Gento, it, or just purely for gore, it sacrifices the character in the story. Wouldn't it have been more powerful just having Gigi throw up the eyeball and just remain there sick heaving and then Sarah eats the eyeball and then walks away. Instead, Gigi kills herself because Sonic's inside of her and I actually saw that coming and when she started cutting herself up, I was just yawning. I was like, oh, okay, she's just, it's just going to go into that garbage. Yeah, <laughs> for the eyeball to be so intact and um, for her to re-eat the eyeball, I was cringing a bit. Um, <laughs> I, th- I actually thought that was brilliant that just because it just really points out, oh, they actually did eat her and yes. just to have the eyeball come out, it's just so unrealistic. Like, come on, that would surely be, you know, um, digested in some form. Well, I mean, there's that telling line, of course, where the other girl says, um, have you ever had a girl screw you out of a job? And she said, yeah. And she goes, what did you do? And she says, I ate her. Yeah, that's when you put two and two together. You're like, no, I must have mis- misinterpreted yeah. that. Until you see the eyeball, you're like, oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah, well, when they're bathing in blood, nothing is clear. It's all over Gina Malone's face and hair. And she's just watching the other two girls wash uh, you know, Elle Fanning off of them. I thought that um, was Elle Fanning in the bathtub, but oh, okay. w- yeah, when when I first saw it, then I, I had to um, think about it again, and I thought, no, that must have been uh, Gina Malone bathing in a blood, just made it seem more sick. I found her character very complicated. Obviously, she's attracted to um, Jessie and uh, bathes in her blood and stuff, but she's not a, uh, a dumb model, competitive model, you know? She's not getting cheated out of any jobs because of Jessie. She just wants to be with Jesse. And I feel a bit like, why would she partake in all the eating? Maybe she didn't. Maybe she just bathed in her blood. But she just does the makeup. Like, it was just kind of a an attraction. But then, of course, we see that scene earlier where she's, uh, you know, with a dead body, um, which is also... A real warm-up to the cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where the necrophilia scene where Ruby, uh, Jenna Malone, has sex with a corpse. I-, I felt it was too much of a rip-off of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive where Naomi Watts is masturbating. And, and the director just thought, oh, how can I one-up to David Lynch sort of thing. But there was a sense to Jenna Malone that she is dabbling 
uh, in witchcraft. And I don't know, when she was sh- um, uh, watering all the flowers, you see her shirtless and all those tattoos everywhere and just the way she was lying on the uh, on the garden bed. And then what supports my this idea strongly is that she is in the moonlight and then having a period um, in the moonlight, just sunning so... Uh, uh, diabolical about it. Uh, nothing against witchcraft if you guys are into that sort of thing, but the, <laughs> <laughs> but she she is she does seem like she does uh, dabble in the dark arts a lot, and uh, yeah. The, yeah. But like I said, I don't I don't know if she would have consumed her at all. Just um, just bathed, bathed in her in blood. blood. Maybe kept the blood of a whatever virgin for some secret spell in the future. <laughs> Um, it really does support this whole LA will chew you up and spit you out attitude. Somebody's taken that extremely literally. <laughs> when she kills herself with the scissors, you know, cutting, I need to get her out of me. Uh, when people watch this film, if they haven't um, already seen it and they're happy to have this spoiled, the background wallpaper, I did glance at it, it looked like uh, Nazi swastikas. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, on second viewing, I just want to put it out there. Uh, people can check it out. I've only seen the film once. Um, but, you know, really fast forward to that end scene. It's really <laughs> worth the journey. <laughs> I, I would have found it more interesting if she had just stayed there um, throwing up uh, more and more. She's just really sick. And it would have been more interesting to me, Just is it guilt forcing her to throw up uh, Jesse's body or is it actually a poisoning uh, rather than just simply, oh, she has to kill herself because she has to get Jesse out of it. It just seemed way too extreme. And had they just had the eyeball, there would have been no violence at all in this entire movie. I, d- I can't think of any other violent scenes all throughout this movie, and I think it would have been stronger for it by having a very violent extreme scene puts the film, uh, I don't know, it kind of cheapens it in a way. Uh, I feel just having a bit uh, too much extreme violence makes it very exploitation. I, I agree, and it does change tone as the film goes on, uh, like I said, I was totally with it for probably 80% of the film, uh, very much enjoying it. And then because it was so different, it made me think, um, are you familiar with the film Red Eye with um, Killian Murphy and uh, Rachel McAdams? No. So the film starts off the trailer, I should say, starts off if you watch the trailer. It's a um, romantic comedy kind of vibe where they meet in an airport and they're having a good time. And uh, kind of, you know, flirting, meet cute in the airport. And then it shows them on the plane. And on the plane, he turns into a crazy creep. And it, the whole trailer changes from romantic comedy to um, like a thriller on a plane. Had they not revealed any of that and people sat down in the theatre and thought they were watching a romantic comedy. And then it changed halfway through into another film. I feel a bit like that's what happened here. Uh, that it started as this gritty look at the LA modeling world and then became Becomes an exploitation film. <laughs> yeah, became the kind of necrophilia film where she spits in the mouth of the corpse before fooling around with it. And then cannibalism, where we see an eyeball be regurgitated up afterwards, uh, totally changed the tone of the film for me and I wasn't prepared for it. I know it was effective, I know that's why I had that reaction, you know. I got a little bit of a hint of that when uh, she has a dream sequence of Keanu Reeves breaking or just coming into uh, her hotel room and putting the knife down her throat and going wider, wider. And then there's that really eerie moment, as we talked about before, of her neighbour getting, I I guess, attacked by an uh, unseen uh, assailant. It just 
really two levels of violence there. One, we don't actually see that of the knife being inserted, but just the idea of it is so eerie. And then the secondly, of course, a neighbour being attacked, and we just hear the um, audio of it, I think is just an example of his absolute mastery of the medium, that he can just conjure these really dark moments. At that point in the film, when Jesse dies, is that when the fil- the film loses momentum for you? I guess, uh, you know, anytime your lead character is killed off, uh, the film changes in some... When did you figure out she was actually killed off? When the, all the blood, when they were showering with the blood? No, when they, when they surround her in a triangle, which resembled the neon demon, if you will, and they push her in the pool and she's lying there and her head is pooling blood behind it. Uh, I thought, yeah, well, that's it. She's not going to make it now. Wow, I actually thought there might be, oh, maybe she did make it or something. Maybe no. they... <laughs> no, um... I do, you know, just because in normal films when police investigate crimes, I did sort of think, oh, well, well, she's dead in the pool. Like, some cop is going to easily put this together. Uh, It's her house or whatever, you know. Oh, she's house-sitting. You do have those moments where you kind of think common sense will prevail and she'll change hotel rooms or, you know, she'll stop hanging out with these people. Of course, it's not that kind of movie. It's not super realistic. The fashion world, though, I mean, they seem like pretentious douches, so <laughs> maybe they'll be uh, thrilled with their portrayal. You know that dinner they have where they're talking about true beauty and the currency it is, and uh, beauty isn't everything, it's the only thing. You know, this, this is a very superficial world she's into, and she doesn't have anybody else to show her the ropes. Her parents are dead, she's an orphan, she's too young, she's impressionable. She believes the hype, you know? She gets told she's all that. There's that scene where they're one by one in underwear, flesh-coloured underwear, and they're walking in front of that um, designer. Yeah, he's directed so over the top by looking at his hanky the whole time. Oh, yeah, (laughs) I know. He has, like, a serial killer look. (laughs) Anyway, fashion can be murder. The, The thing is, he goes really big on just he sees her, and he's like, yes, wow. You know, he loves her, but he like barely looks up for the other older model. You know, <laughs> and they're all they're all only early twenties as well. <laughs> there is one clue to the cannibalism early on after that um, runway where she bites the uh, wound. Yeah, she tries to drink her blood, much like a vampire on the Fountain of Youth or something. Yeah, which is the only kind of clue of what's going to happen in the end. I mean, would you recommend this to another person? Would you say check out this film, or do you think it's probably not something you can? You can tell yeah, people the, to watch. it's so divisive. It's so extreme. Like, if the person likes horror films, I would definitely recommend it because this is a very well-made movie. Whether people can go with it, that uh, the very, very dark, twisted fairy tale element at the end uh, is a whole other story. Because uh, I, I do believe this is a modern horror fairy tale, uh, and maybe the. The, the title of it and the look of it. Oh, I don't want to see a movie about the fashion industry. No, no, no. Believe me, it's a dark, twisted horror movie. Uh, I would definitely recommend it to those horror fans, but to people who have seen Drive and is expecting something like that, hell no, because they would be, so, you know, they'd be in a fetal position by the end of this movie, Shaky. <laughs> if you told me that it was based on true events, I would probably believe it. You know, if some girls got jealous, killed another girl at, um, you know, in a pool by pushing her into a pool, and then they cut up the body or something, I would be like, yep, that, you know, that sounds um, like it could have happened. Neo's in it, man. (laughs) Yeah. 
There was originally, apparently, uh, some other endings and uh, some, some more improvised endings, I'm guessing. There was a bit where Jack, the photographer, uh, looks at the model who's recently eaten uh, Jesse's eyes and says, well, your eyes are different, you know, and acknowledges that there's a new beauty to her and that eating the other one worked, uh, which was kind of sick as well. <laughs> the fact that it, you know, then people are like, oh, that's the fountain of youth, you know, <laughs> cannibalism. I don't know that I would have shown as much. And as you say, the whole scissors uh, killing herself, cutting Jesse out of her, it was very over the top. Uh, and I, I felt like I had to look away just because I was like, no, oh, I wasn't ready for all this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually saw the gore coming and gore to me is very boring. Uh, maybe because I grew up with a lot of uh, slasher horror films like Friday the 13th and, and so forth. And so if there's a gore scene just for gore, I'm, I'm just yawning going, oh, can we just get to something more interesting? Having her just, you know, be sick because of guilt is more interesting to me than simply going, oh, i got to get her out of me. Oh, i got to cut, cut myself, you know, to, to ex exercise the whatever the poisoning out of her. Ultimately... I very much enjoyed the journey. I think Nicholas Winding Refn did very well. Uh, even if he's nodding to other directors, um, I appreciated the, the effort of this. And um, I feel like we're going to have to keep an eye on him on the podcast, Lloyd. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, th this film, I guess, is considered a failure. I have a strong feeling it will grow into a cult uh, horror movie. A lot of critics have been very, very cruel on this, but I think over time people will accept it more as a very interesting look at the fashion industry and a very, very solid uh, horror fairy tale. Because you've got to remember the original fairy tales that the Grimm brothers found were very dark. Hansel and Gretel did get eaten. Red Riding Hood did get killed by the wolf. It was only because they, they were, the books were selling really poorly and they were so scary, um, the Grimm brothers changed it to a happier ending. The reason why these folk um, tales exist in Europe was to warn kids not to trust strangers. Yeah. So that, that's why I don't trust the, the big bad wolf and so forth. And these fairy tales are very dark. And I, I feel like Neon Demon is written in the va same vein as the original grim horror stories. So that's why it's such an uneasy, dark feeling at the end. Don't, I guess the moral of the story here, if I could put one, is just don't trust fashion models <laughs> or, or pride. Pride is a real vortex into the, into the grim, ugly darkness. Yeah, and there's a lesson about vanity here as well. Yeah, and being superficial. Yeah, no, I think that's that's spot on what you've said about the fairy tales. I don't know that that it's as good a film without the cannibalism and without the necrophilia, but I think that's what makes it unfortunately memorable. This could have been shorter, absolutely. The Keanu stuff could have been shortened. And I feel like, you know... In the same way people want a Tarantino film, they want as long a film as possible. It's probably a whole bunch of Nicholas Winding Refn fans, and I'm one of them, uh, that don't mind lingering in his world a bit longer just to kind of, uh, because it's going to be every year or two when you see a film of his. I just love the rhythm of his dialogues uh, as well. There's just these very precise pauses and the delivery of the dialogue how the, the rhythm of all these actors how they speak and the, the way they look at each other it's just timed so beautifully with the music yeah. and everything like that just the pacing is just absolutely spot on it's very difficult to do not many people can do it and I, I do I, I, my criticism of it he rips off a lot of other filmmakers but to even get to that 
uh, ability to have that craft is very difficult, and he's got it in spades. This music was really, really suited the film, though. There was a scene where Elle Fanning was floating around, and the music that was playing was uh, like a ballerina music box. You know, it's just fragile, beautiful thing, and there was lots of nice, subtle nods like that where, you know, you're made to feel something. So, I mean, it's a huge success as a stylish directorial piece. But as you say, it's um, been a commercial failure. I mean, perhaps it will grow to find that cult audience, but um, yeah, this this has probably hurt him in terms of uh, his next project, you know, getting his next project off the ground. Because uh, backers want their return, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's ultimately a business, so um, filmmaking, and you can't just indulge in, um, you know, in art without it being commercial all the time. I don't know if he can make his money back with this modern age of Blu-rays and DVDs because they're just physical media just isn't, you know, a a thing anymore. I I guess streaming services like Netflix are, but I I don't know how much if they pay uh, back, if they they can make their money back just on streaming services. I I just don't know how all that works. Yeah, I wouldn't think... I would think box office is number one, but maybe this will be really big in Germany or some other country that embraces it. Yeah, so um, The Neon Demon, check it out if you haven't already, I guess. Um, it will find an audience and it will it will stay with you. It's sort of hard to get some of the imagery out of, out of your head, I think. Definitely not going to show it to my kids, <laughs> even as a cautionary fairy tale kind of thing, you know. If they want to go out and be models, maybe it'll be something I consider, but... Um... I think Nicholas Winding Refn will be held in very high regard as soon as he matures and just gets out of his violent sensibilities. I'm not saying nothing against violence or, or, or anything like that, but the way Nicholas Winding Refn uses it just seems too childish and just how he succumbs to it, just like, oh, okay, we're going to go there. Whereas I, I've my criticism of Quentin Tarantino, I praise him about the violence because it's obvious that's what he likes like, and, and it does suit the story in a sense. Like Hateful Eight is such a good thriller movie and then the moment Samuel Jackson shoots that guy in the head, his head explodes and it's just like, oh, is this like a splatter movie? But the way Quentin Tarantino handles it, it just seems like it suits the piece better <clears throat> Whereas Nicholas Winding Refn feels like he's just paying more homages to his favourite filmmakers and I, I just think he needs to pay more attention to the story and do what the story needs rather than his own um, uh, enthusiasm of cinema. It wasn't original enough for you. Yeah. That's fair. If um, if I told you that it was nominated for an Academy Award, what Academy Award would you expect it to be nominated for? Uh, cinematography. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I think that's the real delight here is that it looks fantastic. And, you know, award season's coming up. Maybe it will be. Uh, Well, you guys can find more from us at podmeifyoucan.com. At the moment, we have a YouTube channel to complement this podcast. And uh, the link to it is right there. But it's youtube.com slash podmeifyoucan. There we uh, are putting together obscure film reviews. Whereas we might do current stuff here on the podcast. Over there, we're doing stuff that's 30 years old, 25 years old. Each obscure DVD features a famous star and uh, it's early in their career or it's on the way down some dark period where they took a foreign film or a cameo and something for a paycheck. Uh, Most of the films we see, nobody's seen or um, you wouldn't have even heard of, you know. They're the DVDs that you look at and go, oh, that's weird. I never knew Rob Lowe was in that movie or... Oh, that's strange. Pierce Brosnan with bleach blonde hair. And, you know, you 
you just yeah a big question mark we we find these in op shops and as parts of um you know 10 packs of dvds where they're the one you wouldn't necessarily watch uh we do our reviews over there on the uh, youtube channel and we try and bring you you know a short concise review of of this film you'll you'll probably never see otherwise one of my favorites i've enjoyed uh was totally blonde which starred michael buble it was made in canada and it was the funniest film unintentionally funny so many so bad it's good moments and uh, i've recently seen another film which uh, fantastically featured post-sex scene the two in the sex scene washed the sheets together which um it's gems like that that keep me coming back lloyd have you enjoyed making uh the youtube videos yeah absolutely i discovered some hidden gems there one of my recent favorite ones that i reviewed was our uh, road races which was uh rob rodriguez's second film after el mariachi starring salma hayek and david arquette and uh, it was a film that he made pretty much just for Salma Hayek to get to show that she can star in a movie and you know hold hold the film together, and that's what gave him the green light to cast her in Desperado, and uh, gave birth to one of the most beautiful Latin stars in movies. But before Salma Hayek, there wasn't really any Mexican stars starring in a movie. I don't. I think not, uh, only Rita Hayworth was before her, and you know I, th- I don't think she's full Mexican. And now we have. Latin stars all throughout movies such as Ava Mendes, Jennifer Lopez and so forth and so that movie Road Races in my mind is and Desperado was one of the main pioneers for Latino the Latino culture in Hollywood movies. And it's those kind of insights you can find all the time on our YouTube channel. Feel free to like us on Facebook you know search for Podme if you can or the link is there at www.podme if you can and send us a suggestion of an obscure movie. If uh, if you've picked up a DVD and you've said, oh, cool, uh, Tom Cruise is in this movie. It's got a big picture of Tom Cruise's head on the front. And when you've watched the film, you've said, was that Tom Cruise in that one scene? <laughs> that is the kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, marketing brilliance that these DVDs have. They often find out who the star is in retrospect and then make it very clear on the DVD artwork who they, you know, who's selling the film to you. We've enjoyed it, The Neon Demon. Uh, Stay tuned next week. We'll have an interview with an Australian uh, writer whose film is about to be adapted, or it has just been adapted. It's about to be released, I should say, uh, and it will be available on demand. Uh, So that's next week on Pod Me If You Can. Thanks for listening. Hit it. for listening please like us on facebook and follow us on twitter go to www.podmeifyoucan.com pod me if you can movie reviews